Hello, this is Shirley Comer, and we are here for week three, the assessment of the head, neck, and the regional lymph nodes. Beginning our assessment, we go back and remember those four assessment techniques that always guide our physical assessment. Those are inspection, palpation, percussion, and auscultation. So we're going to start our assessment with inspection. We're going to inspect the head for size and symmetry. Some conditions that may be noticeable on inspection are microencephaly, where the head is abnormally small, or macroencephaly, where it is abnormally large. A normally round head is known as uh, normocephalic. You also want to inspect the facial expression and features for appropriateness. Look for s symmetry in the movements of the face. Um, do the eyelids open equally? Do the, does the mouth uh, move symmetrically from both side to side? You want to look for any drooping, injuries, tics, malformations. You also want to look for the affect, whether it's flat or whether it is an appropriate affect. This slide gives some uh, photographs of macro and microencephaly, and um, when you do a Google search for flat affect, the first thing that comes up is a picture of Bob Dylan, so I included that here to give you an idea of what a flat affect looks like. It's an expressionless uh, face that doesn't change based on uh, the normal way a face changes during conversation. Next, we're going to palpate the head. You want to palpate the head and scalp. You'll want to use gloves if you have any concerns that there may be uh, infestations or open lesions. If you're unsure, you should wear gloves just to be on the safe side, especially if you're underneath hair and you might not be able to see a lesion that's hidden on the scalp. So you want to palpate the entire head and scalp. You also want to palpate the temporal artery which is located, as the photograph shows here, uh, above the eyebrow, right at about the hairline. There should, you it, there should be a light palpable pulse there. You also want to palpate the temporomandibular joint for any popping, crepitus, cracking with movement. Place your hand over the temporomandibular joint and ask the person to open and close their mouth. You should have a smooth opening and closing without feeling any popping or crackling. This is a, f a slide that shows the location of the sinuses. There are the frontal sinuses which are located uh, above the eye orbits and the forehead. There are the maxillary sinuses which are located below the orbits, uh, right above the teeth and uh, over uh, and underneath the cheekbones. Uh, then there are the ethmoid and the sphenoid sinuses that are too small to assess uh, using our assessment techniques but are nonetheless present. The ethmoid are back behind the nose and the sphenoid are slightly lower, kind of adjacent to the eye orbits and back behind uh, deep within the skull. The frontal and maxillary sinuses can be assessed for edema, swelling, and redness. You want to look at the uh, outer surface of the skin to see if there is any edema, redness, or swelling in the area of the frontal or maxillary sinuses or around the eye orbits. You can also transilluminate the sinuses 
you can um, translate transilluminate the frontal sinuses by taking a pen light, a nice strong light on a pen light, shine it uh, the light underneath the eyebrow, um, directing the light beam up toward uh, the top of the head, and you should be able to see the light clearly above the brow. You may be able to see a fluid line, which would indicate that the f there is fluid in the frontal sinuses. Um, and if you're unable to transilluminate the entire sinus, it may indicate that the sinuses contains a substance, either fluid or drainage or um, infectious matter of some sort. Um, but if the sinus is empty, you should be able to light that sinus up fully using this technique. The maxillary sinus can be transilluminated in two different ways. Um, the most direct way is to open, have the person open their mouth, place the uh, light source directly up on the hard palate, and you should be able to see the sinus uh, light up underneath the orbital bone. The other way is to place it, uh, the light on the outside of the uh, mouth under, underneath the cheekbone uh, and, to s and to illuminate the sinus that way. You can also percuss and palpate the sinuses. You would want to palpate over the area of the frontal and maxillary sinus to see if there is any swelling tenderness that might be related to sinusitis. You can also percuss these sinuses by making a light percussive tap over both frontal and both maxillary sinuses. There should normally be a resonant tone. If there's dullness, then there could be thickening of the mucosal walls or the sinuses could be full of fluid or other matters. You want to inspect the external nose. You want to check it for shape, size, and symmetry. You want to note whether or not the um, there's a deviated septum, uh, whether that's noticeable, whether there is uh, any bumps or um, obvious uh, nasal flaring, drainage, or uh, occlusions on either side of the nares. You would also want to inspect the internal nasal mucosa. Use a pen light and shine it up through the nose. You may have to push the tip of the nose, uh, the cartilage on the tip of the nose, up a little bit to see up inside. You want to note the color, the moisture of the mucosa. It should be a light pink. You want to note any lesions. You want to note whether the septum is midline or does it veer off to one side. You also want to locate the turbinates. You should be able to see at least the inferior turbinate, also known as conchas. Um, but uh, the more common name is turbinates. Um, there's an inferior, a medial, and a superior. You should be at least able to see the inferior. You might be able to see the medial. You probably won't be able to see the superior. It's too far up within the uh, nasal cavity. This slide shows a diagram of the mouth uh, showing the uvula, which is the fleshy appendage that is extending into the back of the throat. It uh, notes the pillars, uh, in the, uh, which are the, the lining of the pharynx that comes behind the uvula, and from which in front of are the uh, tonsils, if the person still has their tonsils. There is also the soft palate and the hard palate. 
um, as well as the tongue and the papillae on the tongue. When you're inspecting the mouth, you want to look at the lips and inspect them for color, condition, lesions, odor, uh, and you want to palpate the lips for consistency and for tenderness. They should be firm uh, but yielding, and they should be non-tender. You want to look at the teeth, uh, inspect the number uh, and condition of the teeth. You want to look at the color of the teeth. And you want to ask the person to open and close their mouth to assess their bite or how the teeth uh, articulate with each other. The back teeth, the back molars, should fit squarely on top of each other. Um, they should not be off to one side. The front teeth should fit smoothly over the uh, lower front teeth. If they protrude, that's what's commonly known as buck teeth, but uh, is often called an overbite. Um, if the front teeth close behind the lower bottom teeth, then that's called an underbite. Each one of those conditions has their own uh, consequences as a result of the bite not being correct. You also want to look at the oral mucosa and the gums. You want to inspect them for color, condition, bleeding, any retractions or any hypertrophy. All the mucous membranes should be a light pink, not too pale and not too red. You also want to inspect the hard and the soft palate. You want to use a pen light to do this. You want to look at the color and condition of the hard and soft palate. Make sure that the soft palate and the hard palate are completely fused. Um, if they're not, then the person may have a cleft palate. You want to check the salivary glands using a tongue blade. To do this, you would look for the uh, Sventon's duct, which is on the inner, the inside of the, the inner cheek, and you would use the tongue blade to pull the cheek away from the teeth so that you can see this. It's just a tiny little hole in the side of the mouth. And then you want to look for the Wharton's ducts, which are located under the, t under the tongue. You'd ask the patient to um, uh, touch the roof of their mouth with their tongue while their mouth is open, and you should be able to see two small openings underneath the base of the tongue right next to the frenulum. You want to palpate the parotid gland, which is located in front of the ears along the mandible, um, um, along the mandible uh, bone, and you want to palpate the sub submandibular and the sublingual glands, which are also located underneath the mandible. Uh, a little note of interest, when someone has the mumps, you often hear them described as having uh, swollen glands. What they mean by that is they mean that the parotid gland is swollen. They don't mean the lymph nodes. So that swelling, that characteristic swelling on the side of the face and neck that occurs with the mumps is a result of the parotid gland being enlarged, not the lymph nodes. The lymph nodes may be secondarily enlarged, but the char char characteristic enlargement will be of the parotid. You also want to inspect under the tongue. Again, ask the person to touch their tongue to the roof of their mouth. Look for color, consistency, moisture, and mobility. There should be quite a bit of moisture underneath the tongue. There should be an even, smooth texture, unlike the top of the tongue, which has a bumpier texture. And it should be a light pink, again, color with some areas of transparency. And there should be some vascular areas where you may see some bluish coloring underneath the tongue. 
The tongue should also be freely movable. You want to palpate the tongue for any consistency and tenderness issues. You can do this with a glove and you can also do it with a 4x4 four four, to grasp the tongue with a 4x4. Four four. Um, you'd ask the patient to move their tongue from up and down and from side to side within their mouth in order to determine the mobility of the tongue. You'd want to inspect the oral pharynx using the tongue blade. You want to look for lesions, for color, and for drainage. You would insert the tongue blade into the back of the throat. Um, do this gingerly so that you don't prematurely elicit the gag reflex. We want to do the gag reflex as the very last assessment during the uh, mouth assessment, or else it'll be difficult for the, to get the patient to cooperate by opening their mouth again if they think they're going to get gagged every time. So advance the tongue blades uh, slowly back uh, through the tongue, and you use the tongue blade to push the tongue down so that you can see the pillars, the back of the oropharynx, and any tonsils if they're still there. If they do have tonsils, you want to note their color, their size, and if there's any exudate. There is a rating scale to rate tonsils and I will discuss that in, in, a, in a few minutes but if they do have tonsils you want to include a scale from uh, from one to four plus as to their size. You also want to inspect the uvula. You want to note its color, uh, moisture, any lesions, uh, in it, whether it has a midline position which it should and you want to note that it moves up when the patient says ah. So you have the patient say ah and their uvula should move up because it's attached to the soft palate and the soft palate moves up when they say ah. So that's why the, the uvula moves. At this point then you can advance the tongue blade to elicit the gag reflex. Once you have you want to immediately remove the tongue blade so that the person doesn't actually vomit as a result of having their uh, gag reflex activated. This is a slide that shows the 1 to 4 plus um, rating scale that you'd use for the tonsils. 1 plus is they are just barely visible. 2 plus they're about halfway in between the uvula and the outer uh, margins of the pillars. 3 plus they are about three-quarters of the way toward the uvula, and four-plus, they are pretty much touching in the middle uh, of the uh, pharynx right underneath the uvula. Uh, anything more than two-plus general, generally requires the tonsils be removed. Next, with the neck, we want to inspect and palpate the neck. We want to inspect the neck in a neutral position, um, first meaning just a normal head position, and then we want to hyperextend the, the neck, meaning that you want to have them put their chin up toward the ceiling. In each of these positions, you want to note the color, um, if there's any lesions on the neck, if the trachea remains in a midline position, if there's any respiratory movements uh, visible in the, in the neck, which there normally should not be whether there's any palpation or pulse pulsations visible, and whether there's any asymmetries in the neck. You'd also like to palpate the neck using light palpation to check for masses or tenderness, and you'd like to note the range of motion of the neck. Whenever you're inspecting range of motion of a joint, in this instance the cervical spine, you want to have the patient perform active range of motion. So you'd ask them to put the, the cervical spine through all of the range of motion that it is capable of. So you would ask them to touch their chin to their 
chest to check for um, flexion, put their chin to the ceiling to check for extension. You'd ask them to, to move the chin from one shoulder to the other to check for rotation. And then you would ask them to move it in a circular motion to check for the circular movement of the cervical spine. It's very important when you're doing any kind of musculoskeletal assessment that you're aware of the, the full capability of the range of motion for that particular joint or body area. Next, you want to palpate for the lymph nodes. The lymph nodes, um, there are many lymph nodes in the throat and uh, the cervical, the throat, and the um, upper chest area. And um, it's important that you do know the names and the locations of each one of these uh, sets of lymph nodes. You'd palpate for the lymph nodes using a gentle circular motion. So you would look in the pre and post auricular areas, which are in front and behind the ears. You'd look in the occipital and the uh, jugulogastric areas, which are below the earlobe. You'd look in the superficial cervical, which are along the upper uh, sternocleidal mastoid muscle. You'd look in the posterior cervical, which is at the base of the lateral neck. You'd look at the supraclavicular, excuse me, which are above the clavicle. The submandibular are under the jaw. The submental are under the chin. And the deep cervical are on the jawline along the supraclavicular uh, uh, sternocleidal mastoid muscle along to the clavicle. This slide shows an illustration of where each one of these groups is located. When you're assessing the lymph nodes, you want to assess for uh, lymph nepathy, which would be an enlarged lymph node. Um, cervical nodes can sometimes be felt normally uh, as the result of calcification, um, but there should not be a widespread um, lymph node. You should not be able to feel the lymph nodes um, over the entire area of the neck. You want to assess the uh, any of the areas. Um, if you find a enlarged lymph nodes, you want to assess that area for any kind of active infection. Um, you want to no notice whether the lymph nodes are felt bilaterally or only on one side. Uh, if they're enlarged, warm, tender. Um, if they are bilateral, large, warm, tender, but movable, this may indicate an acute infection in the area that the, that the lymph nodes drain. Chronic infection may show uh, clumps of, of lymph nodes and there may be asymmetrical inflammation of the lymph nodes. Um, malignant lymph nodes are often hard, unilateral, non-tender, and fixed. In other words, they don't move when you palpate them. Um, these uh, lymph nodes should be uh, biopsied uh, in order to check for uh, malignancies in that area. Next, you'd you want to inspect and palpate for the thyroid gland. Thyroid gland is located at the base of the neck. You want to um, shine a, a light uh, across the neck in order to illuminate the contours of the neck so that you can see whether or not the base of the neck is enlarged as, as the result of the thyroid gland. The thyroid gland is normally butterfly-shaped, um, so but uh, the whole uh, gland may not be enlarged. Uh, the lymph node or the 
thyroid gland can be enlarged in total or it can be enlarged just in a portion. So you may see the entire butterfly shape or you may just see a one area of enlargement with the thyroid. You would ask the patient to swallow and note the thi note whether you can see the thyroid moving up and down uh, along the uh, as the patient swallows. Most people can swallow um, just by using their own saliva, but if they can't, you can offer them a glass of water uh, in order to facilitate their swallowing. Next, you'd want to palpate the area to see if you can palpate the lobes of the thyroid. Under normal circumstances, you should not be able to feel the thyroid. However, in pregnant women, um, in very thin, uh, very thin adults, uh, young children, or in someone who has thyroid dysfunction, you may be able to feel the thyroid. Um, the thyroid can be enlarged in either hyper or hypo function, so uh, the so the an enlargement doesn't indicate. Um, hyper versus hypo, it could be either. There are two traditional ways to palpate the thyroid gland. One is to stand in front of the client, the other is to stand behind the client. You can feel the edges of the thyroid better from behind the client, but you can see the thyroid better from in front of the client. Um, I tend to do both when I'm assessing the thyroid gland. However, you're only required to do one. Try both assessment techniques and find out which one feels more natural to you. And be sure to practice that particular technique until you're quite comfortable with it. Um, if you're going to stand in front of the client, you need to uh, stand, to, uh, stand in, in front of them with the light shining directly over. You want to locate the isthmus of the thyroid gland by first locating the thyroid cartilage, moving down to the cricoid cartilage, and then right underneath the cricoid cartilage you will find the isthmus of the thyroid gland. You would use your fingers to uh, palpate along the edges of the lobes of the thyroid, which will be located underneath the sternal uh, clitomastoid muscles, and you want to cup the, your fingers underneath there to see if you can feel the edges of the thyroid. It is often helpful to have the patient ask the patient to swallow while your hands are in place to see if you can feel the thyroid moving over your fingers. If you stand behind the client, you'll need to get stand on their right side behind them. Place your both hands on the isthmus. Uh, of the uh, thyroid, you will reach around them with both hands, locate the isthmus, and then work your way out from there to see if you can locate the edges of the thyroid. You shouldn't normally be able to palpate the thyroid. After palpation, you want to auscultate over the thyroid, listening for any bruits that may be heard over, over the thyroid. A bruit is a rushing sound that you'll hear in a blood vessel as a result of turbulent blood flow. If you have ever auscultated over a fistula that uh, is used for hemodialysis, that is a bruit. That's the same sound you'll be listening for. However, um, the hemodialysis fistulas are extremely large, uh, and a bruit that you might hear over the uh, arteries in the thyroid would be a softer sound, but of the same characteristic. It
does indicate abnormal blood flow, turbulent blood flow, um, and there should never be turbulent blood flow in a blood vessel. So that is absolutely an abnormal finding. This slide shows a diagram of the, of the location of the thyroid. You can see that the thyroid cartilage is um, located above the cricoid. Uh, cartilage, which is in men is the Adam's apple, in women is not as pronounced, um, in men it's a little easier to find, and the thyroid gland is located directly underneath the cricoid cartilage. The two photographs on the uh, right hand side of the slide show uh, enlarged thyroids that are visible um, from the outside. You can see on the top one, this is a young lady who you can pretty much see the butterfly shape of the thyroid at the base of the neck. The older um, lady at the bottom has uh, an enlargement in the right lobe of her thyroid, which you can see down there at the base of the neck. A little um, note of interest as thyroids, uh, many older people will have a small scar, thin scar, underneath the neck where they may have had portions of their thyroid removed as children. Before um, iodized salt was um, the norm, uh, goiters uh, occurred much more often among, um, among the population and especially in children. And the way that those were dealt with at that point was to remove that portion of the thyroid. A goiter is an enlargement, a very large enlargement of the thyroid. So, uh, in um, since the, the 30s, since iodized salt had been in introduced, we don't see it that as often. But you may see those thin scars uh, on there. If you do see that, and the patient hasn't mentioned to you that they had a thyroidectomy or a partial thyroidectomy, you'll want to ask them about that during your assessment. Some. Special considerations for infants when you're doing a head uh, assessment is uh, you'll want to look for fontanelles on um, infants. You'll want to do a head circumference measurement of any child under two years old, and you'll want to compare that to standard growth charts for infants. I will place uh, a, a couple of uh, growth charts, one for boys, one for girls, in the class resources that use um, head circumference measurements to indicate the growth of the child in our class resources so that you'll have those available if you need them. You also want to look for the fontanelles. There's the anterior and the posterior fontanelle. The posterior fontanelle may be closed um, by the time uh, a neonate is born. If it is present though, it's about a one centimeter um, area where the skull has not quite fused uh, that's located at the at the along the central sulcus toward the back of the skull and the anterior fontanelle closes somewhere between 9 and 24 months it's bigger it's between 2.5 and 5 centimeters um, and it is located toward the front along that central sulcus uh, you may see and feel a pulse in that uh, anterior fontanelle. Um, it may bulge if the infant's crying or if there's increased intracranial pressure, and it may be sunken or depressed if there's dehydration. This slide shows a, a picture of the location of the anterior and posterior fontanelles, and the bottom of this slide shows the proportion of the head circumference as it relates to the age. And you can see that in an infant, 
the head is a much larger portion proportion of the body than it is as an adult. So the head is about uh, a third of the body size as an infant, whereas in the adult it's about um, two-tenths. And that can be a good indication as the child ages as to the size of the uh, the size of the cranium should be uh, attaining. So some age-specific considerations regarding uh, pregnant, pregnant women. You may normally feel the thyroid gland in pregnant women. Um, the thyroid gland tends to enlarge in order to meet the increased demands uh, uh, for the thyroid hormones of the pregnant, uh, pregnant woman and the fetus. In older adults, there may be some senile tremors of the head, uh, and this is like a gentle shaking uh, of the head, kind of like if you remember Katherine Hepburn, how her head used to shake. Um, those are senile, senile uh, tremens. They're considered benign. They're not a neurological finding unless they're interfering with function. If an older person wears dentures, their uh, facial features may be distorted when the, they're not uh, wearing their dentures, and it may be difficult to assess symmetry. If at all possible, try to assess them with their dentures in and out. There may also be an increased cervical concave um, curvature of the neck, um, which is a kyphotic curve. There is a normal kyphotic curve of the, of the neck which is a concave curve, um, but in uh, especially older women who may have osteoporosis, there may be an incre increased curvature of the neck in that area. Although we're not going to d d d dwell um, specifically on cranial nerves until we get to the neurological system uh, later in the trimester, this is a good place to introduce cranial nerves because most of the cranial nerve assessments that uh, we will be performing are actually done on the head, um, the head, face, and neck. So this is a list of the 12 uh, cranial nerves. You will be expected to know the, the number, the name, uh, and the um, the, how each cranial nerve is tested for your for your midterms or for your final exam. Cranial nerve one is the olfactory nerve and it tests for the sense of smell. Cranial nerve two is the optic nerve and it tests for the visual fields. And when you use the ophthalmoscope to examine the retina, you are also uh, assessing the optic nerve. Optic nerves three, uh, three, four, and six are the oculomotor, the trochlear, and the abducens, and they're grouped together here because uh, collectively they control the pupil size and reactivity. When you're doing a per perla assessment, you are assessing these cranial nerves. You're also, when you're also assessing extra uh, ocular movements and cardinal positions of gaze, which we'll discuss in detail when we do the eye and ear, you're also uh, assessing um, three, four, and six. The trigeminal nerve is five. Uh, it is, um, it innervates the side of the face and the jaw. Uh, you test for this muscle by asking, by testing the draw strength and by testing sensory function by using cotton wisps or other types of sensory uh, tools in order to test uh, sensory function of that nerve. Also the cranial, the corneal reflex is also a way to test for trigeminal nerve integrity. 
Cranial nerve 7 is the facial nerve, and to test for this, you would look at the facial symmetry, ask the patient to smile, frown, close their eyes, lift their eyebrows, puff their cheeks, uh, and, this, and symmetrical motion indicates that this nerve is intact. Eight is the acoustic nerve, and this is tested by hearing acuity and doing the Weber and Rhine test. Nine and 10 are the glossopharyngeal and the vagus nerves. These are tested by doing the ah and watching the uvula rise and by testing the gag reflex where appropriate. And the 11th cranial nerve is the spinal accessory. You would assess this by asking them to shrug their shoulders and turning their head against your resistance in order to check strength. And 12 is the hypoglossal, where you'll you assess this by asking them to stick out their tongue, uh, and there should be no tremors, and it shouldn't deviate from midline. So that's kind of a quick preview of the cranial nerves, which we'll delve into more in detail later. Our practice exam question for this week um, deals with the sinuses. So your mother has a sinus infection. Which changes would you expect to find on her head and neck exam? A, would you expect to find tender earlobes with enlarged lymph nodes? B, tender maxillary area with enlarged lymph nodes? C, tender neck muscles with enlarged lymph nodes? Or D, enlarged thyroid gland with enlarged lymph nodes? And the correct answer is B. The maxillary sinuses are located uh, in that area and the lymph nodes that would be enlarged are related to the immune system and the area that is drained by those uh, by that sinus um, th those sinuses. So that is the end of our lecture. I will also post this as a podcast for anyone that wants to subscribe to them using iTunes or uh, Yahoo Music or another aggregator uh, along those lines. And you can either listen to them on a computer, burn them to a CD, or download them to an MP3 player. If you have any questions about any of the material, please don't hesitate to contact me.